Spectre Cinema Club, episode 162. Today we are discussing Strangers on a Train, and Damaris on Letterboxd gave it four and a half out of five stars, saying, thank God we have earbuds now to tune out the randos on trains who ask to help them commit murder. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Spectre Cinema Club, a horror podcast obsessed with all the subgenres within. I'm one of your hosts, Devon Taylor. Joined with me as always, I got Gary McDowell. You like murder, Devon? You know how I would commit the perfect murder? No, that what a weird way to start a conversation that Bruno does like a couple of times throughout this movie. <laughs> Believe it or not, I've heard weirder uh, ways to start you, I prob- you probably have. Being a bartender, I'm sure you've heard way weirder. <laughs> you, you have no idea. You have no idea. The the things that you know being a stranger that people are willing to like say to you just because you're a stranger so uh, (laughs) very excited to uh, get into that as we continue on our month of alfred hitchcock and joined with us we have a very special guest um a first having a director on of a movie that we've covered here already yeah we have the director of tragedy girls and most recently it's a wonderful knife welcome to the show tyler mcintyre Hey, thanks so much for having me. Welcome, welcome. Of course. Thank yeah. you. I'm very excited to have you here. And uh, we were kind of talking a little bit beforehand and at Donato's place. That So you typically don't listen to episodes or like uh, things that people do on your movies, but your wife does. Uh, yeah, my, my wife kind of hunts around the internet and uh, Apple Podcasts to kind of see if there's anybody uh, shit-talking me and uh, eventually uh, comes <laughs> so, up. So she did it as like a defense sort of way of like, uh, no, who wants some? <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, I, I think, well, we, we've had uh, a fair amount of our relationship kind of like um, where she kind of works in northern Canada and I work in Los Angeles. And so I think she kind of started it as, um, you know, looking up podcast that i was on just to kind of you know sort of like just because she missed me yeah yeah of course, um that's and sweet. then um but uh but yeah then I, I, you know i think occasionally she she just you know searches around and uh, you know yeah. probably not so much there's been a lot of knife coverage in the last little bit so maybe she's got some catching up to do but yeah now we'll have her on the podcast next <laughs> exactly because i was about to say i was like i was like ooh, i'm ready to like let you know somebody have at us you yeah know, like oh you you said this but yeah so it looks like we're gonna have to get your wife on because and and i mean that's a uh, a great sign of a wife as well just like i'm on the lookout that's I'm, right I'm guard my got man. his back got his back yeah no i had a chance to see uh it's a wonderful knife uh, this past week in theaters and uh yeah for genre fans out there who are like looking for that sort of vintage retro sort of slashers that you would get that would be holiday themed that were certainly fun but bloody but also really heartfelt too um i think it's a wonderful knife if you can't make it to theaters i know it's not playing everywhere but uh it will be coming to shutter very very soon and it's a blast it's super super fun so uh congrats on the new release it must be really exciting you're you're too kind thank you thank you i, I was gonna ask um i mean because we we you know do a lot of talking about subgenres here like so how does it feel to be in the illustrious canon of holiday horror you know because it's it's very specific and you know recognizable obviously mm-hmm. i love holiday horror i i think that that's pretty obvious, uh, but or if, if you you know hang out with me in the holidays, um, but uh, I definitely um, you know I, I sort of grew up um, you know liking the the Christmas movies that were a bit you know off kilter like you know the Nightmare Before Christmas sort of one and and one of my favorites is the uh, Richard Donner Scrooge. Mm-hmm. you know like that's uh, you know it's it, they're so fun and, and that movie's practically a horror movie anyway and, and even like you know 100%. like like Black Christmas really kind of started the slasher genre you know in a lot yeah. of ways uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of a, you know, there should be more holiday horror. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think of that. What's that Christmas song where they say like scary ghost stories and tales of the glory, you know, like I think horror is like really suited for, uh, you know, the holiday kind of times. And I think that uh, your movie definitely has a lot of fun. There's like deaths with candy canes and, you know, all of the kind of stuff that you would like to see, all you know, blood soaked snow and all that kind of, you know, great tenets of the genre. Yeah, I, I've been having fun on Twitter lately because, I mean, there's, you know, we get many uh, Halloween movies. We get many uh, Christmas movies. Yeah. Uh, there's still many holidays that don't have, you know, movies. I mean, Thanksgiving isn't kind of represented enough. So I've been like trying to find uh, like what makes November movies yeah. November. Because like in October, you see pumpkins, you know, it's a Halloween movie. You see, mm-hmm. you know, in Christmas horror, you see the candy canes in yeah. the snow, you know it. So it's like yeah. uh, trying to figure out like, you know, what uh, November would be. Well, I think you and I are going to be talking about that pretty soon if our plans go as is uh you know planned i guess <laughs> if plan- yes it's, if plans go as planned uh we, we love being very specific here uh tyler is there a uh holiday that you think is not represented enough that could definitely use a horror treatment um you know i i think that there's i mean other than the leprechaun there's not a lot of great like saint patrick's day uh stuff you know i yeah. know that's a bit far down the calendar but uh you know i i think that there could be more um i'm also i'm excited for founders day coming out you know like i don't yeah. even know what, i i don't even don't even know what the hell i that, actually saw that the trailer is. in front of your movie <laughs> yeah yeah totally. they, i mean you know i i got to meet those guys at a, a festival called tron after dark last month and i i wasn't able to see the movie but i'm i was pumped to see the trailer at the front of our movie and, yeah. and they have a great looking killer and stuff i don't know it's a slashers are riding high uh holiday wise that's kind of the thing is like anytime one comes out i'm like bring it on you know let's see what you've got like i don't care how good or bad it looks i'm just excited to kind of be there <laughs> i don't even know the date of founder's day like i have i don't no even know what that, that is. what is Where that is, is that a holiday i didn't know. <laughs> but, you know i think there'd be a funny thing too because i always like to talk about uh i call them social media holidays where like you'll be just scrolling randomly and they're like did you know today is national blankety blank day and yeah. it's like no no one knew that you know so it's like i <laughs> Uh, you know, so what what even is truly a holiday these days? But uh, I agree that St. Patrick's could use a, a, a very straightforward, like serious one. You yeah. know, like uh, obviously Leprechaun is fun and all, but uh, not not all that scary. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, I'm surprised there hasn't I mean, I'm surprised there hasn't been like an Arbor Day. Like, you know, like, you know, like people, uh, you know, uh, the earth rising up or something like yeah. that or, or like an eco terrorist. Uh, doing something for for the earth you know yeah. i'm surprised like a pacific somewhere. rim spinoff you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. pacific rim definitely uh uh here for the environment for sure um yeah so that that's like one that surprises me that i'm like you know like yeah. with how uh you know uh conscious people are of nature and stuff right now you know i know there are some like uncle sam kind of related ones out there but i think we could use a fresh look at that because i think fourth of july certainly has like a different context nowadays than it has, it's a lot has scarier than it used to be yeah, yeah way scarier and so i think some kind of fourth of july you know hyper nationalist kind of parody could could definitely be suited but i am also thinking of like valentine's day because like my bloody valentine if you've actually seen the movie it's not very valentine related it's a lot of it is like in a mine <laughs> so i think maybe a fresher look at that too uh, could be definitely uh, needed Hey, I'll say, speaking of Valentine's, It's a Wonderful Knife definitely gave me some shades of Valentine 2002, and that is a very good thing. Uh, you guys really evoked the spirit of, for me, it was like the early aught slashers that uh, really came through for It's a Wonderful uh, Knife for me. Yeah. 
Yeah, we definitely, uh, you know, are both big fans of of that kind of, you know, things that sort of came out in the wake of, of Scream and that kind of whole, like, Kevin Williamson uh, kind of horror cycle that, uh, you know, um, I think was very formative for me because I was, you know, like, going, uh, you know, f- uh, going through high school at the time. And, uh, you know, so, uh, like, we definitely tried to, um, you know, I, and I, I've worked with some actors from that, you know, I, like Elise Neal, who was in Scream 2, was in was in Tragic Girls for me. And then yeah. we had um, Katie Isabel, who was, was in Ginger Snaps, uh, who was in It's a Wonderful Knife for me. And, and like, it's, there's a lot of lessons, you know, from that. You kind of got, like, the 80s, the quality of, like, the 80s slashers in terms of, like, brutality. But then you have all the character work that we got from, like, those John Hughes movies mm-hmm. kind of being sewn in. And I think it really took things to the next level and, and was quite formative for a lot of, um, you know, people who are working today in the genre. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, shout out Michael Kennedy, definitely a disciple of, you know, Kevin Williamson in, in a interesting way. Um, really, yeah, did bring that through and uh, having Catherine Isabel in there, you know, a bona fide screen queen to kind of uh, pass the baton off to these uh, new horror girlies was a little extra wholesome. Yeah, yeah, they and you know, and you know, I mean, she's just so great. Like in terms of, um, just like really brings it, and and, and just has a ton of great ideas, and and just you know, I'm, I've been a fan of hers for a long time, and she's in like so many like kind of classics, and you know, stuff that people like. I think is underseen. Like I think American Mary's pretty underseen. Yeah, and um, talked about you know, that a few times here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and aside from the you know the um uh you know the the Ginger Snap series, which I also definitely um think it has a lot of a lot of fun things going on. Yeah, also uh, makes an appearance in Freddy vs. Jason, too. And, and we covered uh, her here on the podcast in Bones. Ooh, yeah. What, what, our most popular well. episode, ever, inexplicably. Literally the most popular uh, you know, episode. We should reach out and get and get uh, Katie on here. I'm sure she would have fun. I, Let's I have would it. be thrilled Let's to have her it. on, for sure. Um, and obviously, um, you know, you're affin- you have affinity for slashers and holiday horror. Uh, what are some of your other favorite subgenres uh, within horror? Oh, um, you know, I mean, I definitely uh, like uh, home invasion stuff. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Um, I'm not, I'm a little bit less um, inclined uh, to to favor like supernatural stuff. Like, I don't love haunted houses and like ghost movies in general. I have a tough time with. Mm-hmm. Like, my favorite ghost movies are stuff like The Frighteners, you know, interesting, or like mm. even the Patrick Swayze ghost. You know, like like that's like that's my type of ghost movie. Not so much uh, like you know, I don't like the Amityville horror stuff. Like. Or, or like, you know, in terms of like the, the stuff, the type of stories that I'm drawn to um, and uh, things like, uh, you know, like, like the Conjuring series and stuff like that. Like I, I have, I have a, or is it not, not really, you know, doesn't, um, you know, line up as, as one of my favorites, um, uh, partially because I feel like um, I have a hard time when like the rules of the world are less clear, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and everything kind of gets into this kind of like, it's all, it all, is it a dream or what's going on here? Why are these walls bleeding? You know, that sort of um kind of area I, I like the kind of nuts and boltsness of stuff like slashers and that's like why it's my favorite because it's you know uh, stuff like it, where, where you it's very ground it's very you know you have it's very easy to understand why you're afraid of a guy trying to kill you you know like or, or mm-hmm. whatever and uh and uh whereas some of my favorite like genres that are outside of that that do have supernatural elements would be stuff like uh like invisible person movies like i really yeah. love those Interesting. Uh, and there's so few of them like like the original invisible man uh, i i think is is super interesting but like kind of all over the place like and it's really short mm-hmm. and um and uh like that that book is super interesting um but then it's like you got like Hollow Man, Man. Uh, Memoirs of Invisible Man. is going to make an appearance on the podcast (laughs) at some point. I love Hollow Man. Yeah, I mean, it's just a rich, like kind of underserved sort of... sort of subgenre and and i really um uh, want to make an invisible person movie at some point Ooh, i would i would love to see your invisible person movie i've actually been on kind of a recent kick lately watching uh the the universal ones and then 
uh, rewatching Hollow Man not too long ago, and I'm like, yeah, like we really haven't tapped into the true horror potential. Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously we got the Invisible Man a few years ago, but mm-hmm. like uh, on a on a bigger scale. You yeah, know, that's what I'm I'm intrigued to see. Like, you know, they did Agent Invisible Man uh, back in the day. Like, let's let's deepen let's get into that well a little bit more. Um, but uh, but yeah, love love um. Uh, I know home invasion is definitely a uh, subgenre. Me and Garrett want to tackle on here at, at yeah. some point here pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the before we move on to Stranger on a Train, since you didn't listen to our episode, but I want to uh, get your opinion on for Tragedy Girls. In the episode, we were kind of back and forth on uh, how we would classify the girls as slashers. Um, we we threw around neo slashers around a little bit, and then I threw out the term anti slashers because they're kind of trying to undo the the formula in a way but then kind of tweak it for their their own uh doings uh would you fall on either side of that or do you still kind of consider them straight up like classic slashers in a way yeah i mean i i would say that they're probably i mean i do like the term anti-slashers i think that's interesting i mean they're definitely um one of the things that i sort of come to as a writer often is i like very subversive or deconstructionist kind of ideas. Mm-hmm. And when you put that, when you apply that to a horror, the horror genre in general, it does some very strange things to the morality of it. You know, like when you're like, no, 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 I'm going to make the the person who is the killer, the protagonist, then it puts you in this weird space where you're like with somebody trying to kill somebody, you know, and, and mm-hmm. that's a very uncomfortable place to be in. So how do you make that fun? And then, yeah. you know, the thing we, we did with, with that movie was obviously trying to construct things so that you are in, you're trying to get into the idea of like, Oh man, it's just, I, I'm, I'm just trying, I'm just trying to do this thing with my friend and we can't, uh, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, we yeah. can't pull it off and that's frustrating. And you kind of get into someone's point of view in, in a, in that um, way. And then it just, you have to balance that with like, well, wait a second, they're trying to do something that's, awful you know and they're trying mm-hmm. to something that's amoral and so um yeah i, I do think it's it, that anti-slasher makes sense in that in that it's sort of like you know comes from like you know anti-heroes in like a western you know like mm-hmm. having you know like the outlaw being the good guy i think having the slasher being the good guy in, in our movie you know like because our narrative sympathies with them is is and i have an easy time separating that from like the moral sympathy or the you know o- overall even though i know like that's part of one of the things that's really challenging about the movie you know like yeah. it, it is um, you know, like I, I've been on podcasts literally where somebody was like, you know, trying, you know, did not understand that the pro- that the movie was not pro murder, you know, <laughs> and so you know we essentially had to explain satire for forty five minutes. But like, um, <laughs> it, it was you know like I I I don't really you know um like I I don't I don't love talking about about um you know like like you know my own movies um like you know especially after they're they're done because like you can unpack them a certain way but it's all information that's not on the screen. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean and and that's like therefore it's not that useful you know ultimately like really because like it's supposed mm-hmm. to stand alone you know yeah mm-hmm. um you know but that said like i do understand that like you know like there's a there's this whole kind of industry like that's about you know like brokering thoughts of of of, of, of that people have on on films and and uh so like i i do understand like you know why people as artists may or may not want to engage with that and some people do you know like um but because it does seem like it's a bit of like a conflict of like you know a bunch of people like you know telling telling you, th- you know, whatever thoughts they have on on things and 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 it's they're usually being very uh you know like either critical or or at least um uh like analyzing something that's relatively personal you know like and it's that there's been a lot of time put into it, you know and so like you know like most movies take two years you know and and mm-hmm. are actually your livelihood you know and yeah. there's very few other um 
you know, jobs, you know, like th- th- where, where you're that under a microscope, uh, like in the general public as part of the sure. social contract, mm-hmm. you know, sure. like no one's walking into buildings being like hallway here at, you know, <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, like, like no one, you know, like people don't do that. Like it, it, for most, like for most jobs, like, you yeah. know, 99% of them. And, uh, and so it, it is, you know, like it's pretty easy to reach your saturation for like, you know, things is also like you can't change it because it's done. It's out there. It's not yeah. like, you know, it's an mm-hmm. ongoing thing. And at the same point, like, you know, you want it to stand on its own. And there are some people who don't, who don't engage at all. Like the, like the Kubrick, you know, like, um, idea. And then there's like, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have like stuff like, um, you know, people who, who are, who are like riding that line, you know, um, uh, between like, uh, critic and filmmaker, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure it's also like expounded upon or kind of, uh, made larger based on the fact that like a lot of your characters too uh, are like either queer or or you know being queer is such a big part of the the plot especially with it's a wonderful knife too and that already brings out all of like the worst you know any fandom anytime you start to bring any sort of disenfranchised group into a movie that seedy disgusting corner of any fandom is going to now be extra vocal just because of you know their own biases and stuff like that so yeah, yeah the, there's definitely the the blurring of lines you know like between you know the the audience and the artist and you know it even goes into the way that me and Garrett kind of have different ways of breaking down films like mm-hmm. Garrett is very much more about okay we're gonna talk about like what's on the screen what is told to me what's given to me versus you know I like to Devon's like this would be cool if this happened I like and I'm to, like I guess you're right man I, I like to make I like to make my theories but yeah. I feel like I, I I like to think that I do a good job of whether it be on here or online like like once I get into that territory, I yeah. am then relinquishing that pressure off the director. It's like, yeah. okay, at that point I'm taking in, you know, like, so like there's certain things that you can criticize, you know, either the writer or director for in the film versus yeah. when it then just becomes my, well, you know, I, attachment feelings. I also it. think too, just yeah. adding a director on Twitter or a writer on Twitter and being like, I didn't like your movie. It's like, what a fucking dick move, man. Like, I think it's one thing to watch a film and to be like, you know what? wasn't for me. Even log something on Letterbox or tweet about it or something. Something like that, but to personally go after a director, especially with a film being such a an ensemble, there's so many people that go into it to pin it on one writer or one director or even one actor. I've always thought is just rude for one, but also just kind of ignorant. Yeah, well, they they do send you those things, you know, yeah. like every day. Like I'm still getting emails. studios and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the oh, PR companies literally like monitor all chatter about anything related to the movie on. The That's internet. how we got a hold of our episode. <laughs> I mean, I, PR team. Oh, 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 for, oh, for uh, tragicals? No. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't know about it until, until, you know, I, I put the pieces together after, after we met <laughs> at, at Donato's that night. But, um, but yeah, uh, you know, it is it, it, like they, you know, like, like you, uh, you know, like it, it can be tough to, you know, try and put something out there just because you, you hear about it for the rest of your life, you know? Yeah. And, and it's, you know, like as a director, you, you obviously are, are probably the most, in like in the theory is you're the most in creative con- creative control of a project um which is i think true most of the time but um but there's you know th- that's not even half of the actual decisions that go into a movie maybe you know like like mm-hmm. it's you know it really is a kind of an interesting um position to be in and you you end up like you know like cuz you're cuz you're there on on set trying to get you know things done and then you know like everyone else kind of like, you know, puts their stuff away and goes home and is like, well, we got it, you know, kind of thing. Whereas like you are very much stuck about it. Like, you know, cause you're going to be dealing with this for another yeah. year after today wraps. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then once the movie comes out, you're going to be hearing about it for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, we got it, you know, like, and, and so it's, <laughs> it, you have just a different, you know, there's yeah. a different level of expectation. And it's a privileged position to be in, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, cause you get to tell stories for a living. Um, but that comes with people, 
you know, like, uh, you know, and I think more than any other things, you know, it is, it is, um, it, it's easy to take personally and you have to just kind of remain in a well, headspace. You know? I, I'm hopeful that, especially with movies like It's a Wonderful Knife, I, I think the horror fandom does a pretty good job of, yeah, a movie might not work for you, but in five or 10 years from now, I think the feedback you will likely be hearing about these movies are people who love it and people who watch it every single Christmas or whatever. And it's a new holiday tradition mm-hmm. for them. They're not going to be like, just watch It's a Wonderful Knife. More like it's, sucks you know like i i think no, you know people are more gonna I think be that, i think that supportive. is a good point like i yeah. think the the negative ones though maybe the loudest in the moment yeah you know aren't gonna be the ones that the the voices that like kind of yeah. last over time the people and, that rewatch it every year and yeah. you have a real love for this stuff. but yeah, yeah. It, it's very fascinating you know when people you know audience they think they know a director based off of the movie but like you said like it's like yeah there's a lot of you in it but then there's a lot of everything else going on Which, yeah i it, think actually plays into the plays film that into we're talking this, about today for sure yeah yes it definitely plays in perfectly so let's go ahead and get into the movie for today's episode strangers on a train released june 30th 1951 directed by alfred hitchcock this was written by raymond chandler and senzi ormande uh, cinematography, we got Robert Burks, who's uh, done a couple for Hitchcock, a score done by Dimitri Tiamkin, and this was edited by William H. Ziegler, another returning uh, Hitchcock crew member. Um, uh, box office, uh, the box office numbers have kind of been hard to uh, to look at. Uh, I, I said I was going to look up the inflation numbers to like get the comparison. Yeah. Never did that. Um, so, so from what I'm seeing uh, between just its initial release and like um, re-release, a seven million dollars at the box office on a one point six million dollar budget. Uh, have been noticing though, Hitchcock has never been a big box office kind of guy mm-hmm. uh and you know and which is kind of surprising uh in a way just due to how prolific he was mm-hmm. um but uh let's see over here on rotten tomatoes uh it has 56 reviews uh tyler what do you think the rotten tomatoes percent is sitting at uh i have no idea i mean i'm not even sure how something would be determined for that the movie that's 70 years old uh, it, that has been the the trend that we've been looking at is because obviously like this is post Rotten Tomatoes. So these are current day critics, you know, retroactively reviewing them. And with the 56 reviews, they've been on the higher side. But that does not shock me because, you know, all those people who wrote those reviews learned about Hitchcock in film school. Yeah. That is that is very true. So that probably makes sense why 98% um, regard this as positive. So I, I want to I, I need to find the one person that had the guts to give this a rotten Hitchcock's score. Hitchcock's actually kind of overrated. Kind of mid, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, Garrett, uh, what do you think this has on Letterboxd for the average rating? Well, as I found uh, last week or... No, I, I, I know that all of these are at least in the fours. And so I think that this one I'm going to say is probably a 4.3. It's 4.3 for Strangers on Uh 4.1. Ooh, 4.1 out of 5. Uh, yes, uh, uh, with our foreknowledge of pre-recorded yes. things. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we do know that they are all over uh, over a four. A little peek behind the curtain there. Uh, but yeah, 4.1 uh, out of 5. Um, so Tyler, whenever... Uh, you were asking uh, the films that were 
to be discussed and what hadn't been picked yet. Um, it, uh, you did me a favor, which you picked a film that I was already get picked, so that meant I got to pick a, a backup. And choice. with Rope this this month too, you're just you just lucked out. I, I, I <laughs> got all luck, your favorite Hitchcock movies. <laughs> I, I did luck out uh, getting three out of like the four that like I really wanted to uh, cover on here. So, uh, uh, what made you want to talk about Strangers on a Train today? I mean, I really like Strangers on a Train. Like I um I you know I, I saw it when I was you know probably in high school first. Uh, um, with my grandpa actually. Um, and then, uh, you know, I was pretty aware of it. And then I, you know, as I got kind of deeper into making movies, yeah, I mean, I think it's a pretty classic two hander. I mean, you can, uh, essentially do this as a play and I think it would work every bit as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that, uh, this was one that I saw, uh, relatively late in my like Hitchcock fandom, I would say within the past three or four years was the first time that I saw this movie and it immediately jumped to one of my favorite Hitchcock films. I think that Hitchcock here really plays to all of his strengths. I think that as a director, um, I feel like he does a really terrific job in this movie at, uh, really uh, exemplifying what we were talking about in Rear Window, which he would later go on to make, but doing such a great job of maintaining suspense, character, and theme, uh, like all within the same kind of utility. Uh, I think the way that he moves the camera in this reveals certain information about characters, reveals so much about who they are as a character, but also the story and moving the plot along like Hitchcock is, is, is known to do. I think the film is suspenseful as hell. I think the uh, performances are terrific. I think the score is excellent. Um, I love the simplicity of the story. Uh, I, I love the kind of the place that this holds in Hitchcock's career. This being even what Hitchcock would consider to be his first movie. Hitchcock considered this like he was like now I'm making a movie which I think is fascinating mm -hmm. considered he, he was so prolific before this but this was kind of one of the first one of not the first but one of the first movies that he made when he was America after you know uh, Rope didn't do terribly well financially and this is kind of that first step that he takes to that longer run of the movies that he's he, that he is known for those more box office successes like that you were talking about here but this is kind of that first step but I think it's a uh, an exceptional first step. I think this is certainly uh, one of my favorite Hitchcock's movies, and every time I watch it, I always you know pick up more or pick up little details about these characters. I think Hitchcock has a lot of fun with uh, this. I think this is another surprisingly funny movie from Hitchcock. I think there's a lot of winks and nods about you know certain characters and certain innuendos uh, that I'm sure we'll talk about here. But yeah, it's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Yeah, this one uh, for me again was in that kind of stretch where I was watching a bunch of them and this was one that I just hadn't really heard people talk about as mm -hmm. much but um as far as whenever I was just trying to find his more genre centric ones at the time um I threw it on the list and so this was like one I had pretty much no preconceived notions of and uh really just like blew me away like I I thought this was phenomenal like I like this it's interesting in the in the context of his timeline cuz uh, we'll get into the conversation next week talking about how rope was like kind of a flexy kind of flashy yeah uh you know film for him but then didn't hit the way he thought so yeah. it's like this one kind of feels like it's like him uh being like okay like you know i i wanted to do something different experiment a little bit like let me get in my bag like yeah. in my like kind of comfort zone and do the things that he knows that he's strangers good on at. a train hitchcock's in his bag <laughs> he really is like this is like everything that is kind of in his comfort zone like you're saying like you know just like uh you know whether it be shifting tones drastically throughout mm -hmm. the the film 
or um or maintaining the suspense and like the unfurling of bruno this very en- enigmatic character um who i just like couldn't get enough of mm-hmm. um and i like that we may not have been going in chronological order but as far as on the hitchcock gay scale we've been <laughs> we've been getting progressively gayer you know rear, you sure wind- have, yeah. rear window is pretty hetero and then birds we get we get some inklings of like some more you know yeah. erotic stuff and then this one and then leading up to you know rope that's how uh, we need to produce all of our uh <laughs> all of our episodes each month is uh let's just get it a little bit gayer <laughs> each time yeah so uh i i really uh i really do enjoy this one um so before we get into um some more details uh tyler are you ready to give us a 60 second synopsis uh sure does it have to be 60 seconds or it does can not I- you use this. This is your 60 seconds. You use it however you feel. Great. All right. I got you here in three, two, one, go. Strangers on a Train is about two guys who have a chance meeting uh, on a train, Guy and Bruno, and they sort of talk their way into a uh, mutual agreement that they're going to the murder the problematic person in each other's lives and then what uh ensues is a tale of gripping suspense that um uh where they discover that not everything is as it seems yeah said about does it yeah you only use half the time there which is all you need um because this is you know again like something that we've talked about hitchcock is you know he's kind of set the template for a lot of different types of films um, you know, whether it be these kind of stalker thrillers, uh, he's got quite a few of those or, um, you know, the uh, chance encounter kind of uh, subgenre as well, um, which are uh, some of the subgenres I think are working the best here. Um, I think this really is a uh, fascinating example of like, you know, what what can truly happen in the chance encounter and the chance encounter subgenre is. Uh, typically filled with like more comedies and rom-coms yeah. and things like that and like it's usually about like oh the shenanigans that yeah. ensue after they, that they literally have a meet cute on the train though they, you know? they, have a on <laughs> they bump feet and they're like oh hey i know you Ooh, <laughs> nice lighter you got there exactly buddy. yeah um yeah so so definitely i like the way that he employs this and the way that it still ties into the the film for the rest of it because it happens so early on you know that kind of sets the table and you just kind of see the the dominoes that like kind of come through these chance meetings and then like if uh, if that's gonna like affect you know the the things going on as far as you know bruno's whole murder swap theory Mm -hmm. uh tyler what are uh, some of the subgenre elements that really stick out for you in this one i mean for me i think it's pretty obvious like it's a film noir yeah. Like, really? I mean, you know, like, and not just because um, of, you know, the, the, the photography kind of being sort of high contrast and, and kind of from the era, but like, and not, uh, you know, like uh, Rick Raymond Chandler's involved, you know, like, 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 it's very classic, like, you know, like nobody wrote better, you know, novels than him about this specific, you know, like, uh, about those scary, and it doesn't have like a film, uh, you know, the femme fatale kind of thing going on, but like, you know, Bruno definitely uh, kind of, you know, it, it brings up a lot of the, that same energy, like in terms of charisma and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, that's the biggest one, uh, you know, like, like I think the most obvious one um, for me, but, but, you know, like the proto stalkerness of it, like that's something that didn't even really exist back then. Like we don't really have a, that was just kind of like called trying to date somebody, you know, like, it, it, <laughs> and, and we, you know, we obviously know a lot more now, um, but like just the fact he keeps showing up everywhere, like, you know, we started like it really, 
you know, set the table for like the fatal attractions and stuff like that, you yeah. know, that were coming down the, the pike, you know, 30 years later, you know, like he was really onto a lot of stuff that's, that's really paid off, you know? Um, and yeah, yeah I, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's shades of, of some of the stuff that, um, you know, in terms of like the, the geographic scope of it that you'd see like, you know, coming up in like North by Northwest and things like that later mm -hmm. on in his career. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely, um, uh, you think there's a, uh, you know, he, he's, he's somebody who's very aware of conventions, um, and, uh, or, and so I, I'd be curious to know, like, you know, cause like I didn't check out any of the marketing for this, but like, uh, you know, th this was kind of one of the things that put Hitchcock on the map in terms of like, uh, you know, it was before like Alfred Hitchcock presents, but this was the type of title that, that made mm -hmm. people, yeah. you know, be like, oh, there is a vibe to this guy and, and we can market that like to the general public, you know, mm -hmm. like, like as in he's, you know, your destination for mystery suspense thriller. Yeah. Which wasn't necessarily even a trend back then. Um, it was more kind of relegated to, for actors and actresses to kind of really put them on the playbill. And Hitchcock was, one, like, again, one of the first filmmakers that people would go to see his movies because of him. As He's the star mm -hmm. of the show. And I think you're right in, in pointing this as just Hitchcock being in his bag because this is yet another uh, film of his that is an adaptation from a novel. This time it's an adaptation of a, a, a Patricia Highsmith novel uh, who I think a lot of people kind of attribute as to being like one of the foremost like suspense you know writers not even just female writers but it's a perfect marriage of this you know so-called master of suspense with Alfred Hitchcock which with this kind of mistress of suspense with Patricia Highsmith and you know uh, Hitchcock was so in love with the story that he went on to shoot this film a lot of the stuff in DC was shot before the script was even written it was really just like a, a, a treatment for the film which was essentially just the, the, the plot of the film and you know mm -hmm. they continued to uh, write the the script for this uh, as you know the characters revealed themselves and as the story kind of came to Hitchcock more and even the finale of the movie was like a pretty late addition to the film but I think it's kind of impossible to tell because I th again Hitchcock really is in his wheelhouse here which is uh, he's got a story set uh, not uh, all of it but a lot of it is set on a train which was definitely common for him the lady vanishes he loves transportation this North by Northwest has a lot of transportation stuff too this does but I think the biggest thing and it's one of the subgenres that I felt was most present in here and is very, very present in a lot of Hitchcock's movies is the framed man. Like that was something that he was really uh, in love with. It'll play into my movie math later. But uh, this idea of the somebody who was being framed for a crime that they didn't commit was something that um, Hitchcock used a lot in his films, which I think he kind of used to reveal humanity. And when you kind of back somebody into a corner, you know, how do they respond? How do they react? What are people capable of, you know, when they're uh, kind of pushed into these dire straits? So, yeah, I think uh, the transportation thriller uh, about a framed man, which is, again, how you could describe a lot of Hitchcock's movies. Uh, but it just happens to be all bundled into one movie here. Yeah, the, the, the framed man is very interesting in the way that he uses it here, too, because Again, it goes back to Hitchcock's obsession of like reminding you that he's the director and he's in control. Oh, yeah. You know, so there's something with the frame man aspect of like, because the whole crux of it is like, well, people are going to assume this and they're going to believe this, you mm -hmm. know? So it's like, and though he, you know, us, the audience, we're the only ones that do get to see the whole big picture of everything of what's truly happening. Right. And, but the, but you're watching the struggle of the character, you know, kind of battle with this idea of like, even though he is innocent, he's going to 
look guilty and how and how that's going to kind of affect him yeah. um and with the and the stalker uh subgenre specifically um you know with like stalking a celebrity of some sort mm-hmm. um you know as we kind of keep seeing uh you know more uh fan bases grow more rabid every day um you know following so and so who they think they know you know you really see this with bruno uh, being a tennis fan that you know uh is just like kind of obsessed with guy yeah uh, maybe also wants to fuck him as well um <laughs> you know there definitely is like a because like it, it's interesting because you know farley granger who is you know uh, was known to be bisexual and this kind of started coming out after he did rope yeah. uh is playing the the you know man who is kind of uh, not only afraid for you know the the position that he's being put in as far as like the murder goes, but then also just like this uh, unwillingness to be able to like you know firmly tell somebody, hey, I'm not interested in you. Yeah, uh, you know, and and you see him have that struggle with Bruno, but then also with Miriam as well, which kind of yeah. again kicks off uh, this whole this whole murder swap. Yeah, it is really this idea of like politeness, especially at this time. You know, I think of that dinner party scene where Bruno is like, can I borrow your neck, neck for a second? And then, you know, completely passes out while he's just <laughs> choking this poor woman to death. But yeah, I mean, I th- I think the scene, their introduction, that meet cute where they're, I love the, the first few shots of this movie. Hitchcock is like, have has these long takes of just their shoes just their feet eventually like you know coalescing to this point on the train where they have this conversation and i love that bruno asks guy he's like hey aren't aren't you guy haynes and he's like oh yeah i am and they start talking and then he knows everything about him so like that idea of like aren't you that guy just kind of you know the the tip of the iceberg to like what he knows about this person that obsession that he has about them from guys perspective it's kind of scary and i think it is true about a lot of celebrities is that yeah this person is a stranger to you but they know all of like the tabloid sort of you know wikipedia kind of information Mm -hmm. about you but just because you know those things do you know that person and i think this movie really is like an examination of that yeah and it's definitely a you know like i think on some level it's sort of asking you the question of like is that a chance you know you know meet you know meeting like you know like it was he, you know, like there, um, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, knowing that Guy would be there, mm-hmm. you know, like I know it's Guy who like hits Bruno's foot, I think. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But they, you know, like, is that calculated? Was he just looking for an in, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, uh, and stick his foot out a little, you know, so yeah, he'd yeah, trip yeah. over it or something. Totally. Yeah. Like, um, you know, the, uh, and and I th- and I do think it's creepier if, if it was not, you know, <laughs> like, but but yeah. uh, but it, I like that it, it kind of, you know, can work on that level and you can sort of deconstruct it, um, you know, in, in, in ways that, that are, you know, um, you can pull on a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, individual kind of narrative beats and then find a lot of richness there. Yeah. Yeah, it, it definitely, you know, it, it works both ways because, like, you know, it just depends on which is scarier for you. Is, is the randomness of it, you know, scary? Or is it, you know, if it was planned, is that more scary? I was I was trying to look up the, the stats and there's many conflicting stats, but the, the general stat is it's like most crime is like the a person that you do know versus it being a stranger mm-hmm. uh, involved. Like it, it fluctuates year to year, but it's like between like 70 and like 80 percent usually. Yeah. Uh, which is which is fascinating because yeah it's like did bruno like he's obviously a tennis fan and he knew which tournament he was gonna be in did he just like take a chance on what train he could be on you know and like uh and, and if that ended up you know actually being the case or not and like and and we and we've talked a lot about the you know most recently we've seen a lot a bigger surge in these like social cringe horror movies mm-hmm. um where the the 
politeness and social norms are like kind of tested and yeah. how much you're willing to endure to be a quote unquote nice, polite person, you know, versus, you know, when you're going to like kind of cut stuff off. I mean, you know, like, you, you know, like, hey, is it, you know, he's he is kind of rebuffing Bruno, but at the same time, he's not like, hey, you literally could get up and go to a different cart right now. You know, but he's trying to do it the the more non-confrontational route. And the next thing you know, he's in Bruno's cart having lunch with him. And he's like, wait, how did I get here? Yeah. Because I couldn't say no to having food with you, you know? Well, I think it also, you know, that, that characterization of Bruno and his kind of um, unwillingness to sort of drop this. I think a lot of that is portrayed with his relationship with his mom, which is certainly another, you know, uh, kind of tenet of, of Hitchcock's films, especially later movies, Psycho, you know, coming uh, about... 10 years later but uh mary and lauren portrays the the mother of of bruno and she is just one of my favorite additions to this film because when she's confronted with this truth about her son she's like did bruno tell you that he did this and they're like no of course he didn't and then she's like well there you go there you have it like he didn't do it you know she has this kind of my son could never boys being boys sort of attitude about it and that scene of um uh, the introduction to them where she's like clipping and filing his nails and then he like kisses her hand for a very long time you know uh, Robert Walker who passed away the year that this movie was released he was just in his early 30s and I think the idea of like having this sort of emotionally incestual relationship with his mother again is something that Hitchcock would later explore but it is this idea of like the apple and the tree and like where does this sort of evil where is it born you know and, and, and getting the opportunity opportunity to spend time with the character's mother especially when uh bruno wants to kill his dad it's like freud would be you know <laughs> having a field day with this movie there's so many kind of details here yeah i mean and there's also a lot of um you know like uh interesting things going on with pov uh, pov because like he does balance um between the two characters you know regardless of like their moral Mm -hmm. uh you know um and we're, we're kind of you know near the like code era you know when this was very tough to get stuff like that right through through the wickets and he does such a good job of like you know like you're in bruno's perspective a lot of this movie you mm -hmm. know like like i i had the um opportunity to watch this uh with i mean it's probably the first time i or it was probably the last time i watched it before this rewatch uh, a week or two ago um i i watched it with uh, peter bogdanovich Oh, wow. um, and it was uh, and and one of the scenes he kind of like sort of talked about as we were watching it was the was the lighter one, you know, like yeah. where, where, where he where like Bruno drops a lighter and is like, you know, reaching through the um through the, the things. And, and you're just like, oh, man, you know, I really hope he gets that lighter back. And, and yeah. you're like, wait a second, what am I rooting for here? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you're yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah. really on that. Uh, like in his head Such you know a great scene That's... even though he's so like awful you know or, or, yeah. or like he's so, he's so charismatic and he's yeah. so like and you're really in his perspective and and it's it's fun to be able to manipulate the audience in like so um you know so so uh, proficiently you know in in that way yeah, yeah. like pe people like that that like you know, everybody loves like, you know, a social butterfly or somebody that like can, you know, like come into a situation of all strangers and like immediately impress everybody. Uh, people, you know, we love those type of people when they're not psychopaths. If they're mm -hmm. psychopaths, that's dangerous because like the thing with Bruno is it's like he doesn't lie a lot of the times. He'll say it out loud, but he's able to manipulate you with his charisma and his like unique like reverse gaslighting tactics um, to like you know make people convince themselves he doesn't even have to do it himself which is like kind of the the crazy thing because he's so charismatic and he's like that person you want to believe 
the the best and you and like he says something crazy and like you know it's like oh that's a joke of course like you yeah. know even with his mom like i love how there was like a moment where he like talks about he was planning on like bombing like the white house, the white house. <laughs> she's like i and, hope you got rid of that silly idea yeah. that you had of bombing the white house <laughs> and from what we know of bruno oh he was 100 percent planning yeah that. he's <laughs> like the american guy fox you know like that's yeah. like he had a whole thing worked out yeah the 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 scene that you were um talking about of like these these people kind of waving away you know these crimes are just oh it's just it's just manners and oh it's just oh it's a silly misunderstanding you know that all is kind of the start of this movie that's the entire reason that everything happens because they're in this cart having this what in, in guy's mind is this hypothetical conversation and then once he leaves he's like wait do you like my plan and he's like oh yeah oh yeah it's great and then just leaves and then this guy's like oh wait i thought we were both in on this i thought it was what we wanted to it's do it's like when you when you've been doing a bit with a friend for a minute and then the it turns real for the friend and you're like no no we, got, we were doing a bit, a bit. I was just joking <laughs> we, were, we were doing a bit so um, I, I do want to get your guys opinion on uh, Bruno's murder swap theory so the whole crux of this is I will kill the person in your life for you you kill the person in my life for me and because we are strangers that met by chance no one's gonna connect us and thus we'll be able to get away with the murders mm -hmm. which doesn't work because if people can again like put assumptions in two and two together they're like wait a sec so the the victim was connected to this person this you know so like there really isn't a you know a very far chain to where like that would actually happen so does bruno actually believe in this theory or did he just want to commit a murder and then have the opportunity to pin it on guy like did he ever have any true intentions of being like no no we do this murder swap because like for me like on the second time around i was like is the dad even actually around? You know, it's like, so like what, and he, and Bruno seemed to have a pretty cushy life with his family. So mm -hmm. it's like, do we really think he wanted to kill his dad or yeah. was he just looking for an excuse? Yeah. I, I definitely think that um, the practicality of it you know, in the early fifties, like people got away with murder with yeah. lot, far less evasion, sure. you know, like, like yeah. I, I, I think that that would have been like the idea of killing somebody who is geographically separated from you like um, at that time would, you know, could have worked, especially if they both traveled, you know what I mean? Like, like if they were able to cover their tracks on the actual logistical travel of it, I think there's a decent shot that this, that, that, you know, could work logistically, but, but I don't think it, that really does, you know, is really more the fun of it. I think that um, Bruno definitely um, was just looking for something to, that would cause Guy to be beholden to him, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and his, you know, he's just nuts enough to be like, well, yeah, I mean, I know he really wants this person dead. So why don't I just offer to do that? You know, yeah. and, and whereas I think he, he is less, you know, um, concerned about actually getting something in reciprocation, which is mm -hmm. evidenced by the fact that he doesn't, he needs so little approval yeah. <laughs> that he just goes ahead with it. And that's the fun of it, you know, is that, is that he's like a character that is unhinged in this way that sets, um, you know, sets um, in motion this, this really fun narrative. Yeah, I think. Uh, it's it is one of my uh, slight frustrations with the film because Patricia Highsmith's novel guy actually carries out the murder. He he kills his father first. Uh, he kills uh, Bruno's father first, and uh, the story is a lot about like how how a seemingly normal person is cl is close to making those kind of choices and like how the deterioration of like one's character like how close you are actually to that edge and this movie really doesn't have guy go 
through any sort of will he, won't he. There's that one shot before he like walks into the quote unquote dad's room when when Bruno's actually in there. A hilarious scene, by the way. He's sitting there in a three piece suit, like, oh hello, yeah. Gagged, <laughs> gagged him like um, hard. But, yeah, but he like is like he kind of looks at the gun and then puts it back in the coat, and that's really the only kind of inkling that you get of him kind of having this this flip flop. But yeah, I I think a lot of it is is Bruno is already at that point to where he's already, you know, uh, prepared to make this 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 murder happen. He just needs to kind of ensure that he's going to be able to get away with it. And so he's willing to kill guys at the time, wife soon to be separated because she's an inconvenience. You know, like I, I think that that's one of the scariest things about this film is he's just like his willingness to kill people for not like it's not like these are like horrible people. It's just somebody that's like it would be easier if she was gone. And he's like, oh, I can just I can take that out for you. Almost like he's doing him a favor. I think that's the real horror of the film. Yeah, and I think you can see that, like, in the way that he doesn't just, uh, let, like, you know, like, follow her around till she's uh, alone and kills her. Like, he stalks her. Like, like he makes with her. Yeah, like, he yeah. has, like, a third wheel date with yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, like, I think that's where you kind of understand that, like, that's, you know, definitely he's after something else. And other than, like, this practical murder. And, and that's that's my favorite sequence in the movie is, oh, is when they're, um, you know, at the amusement park and he's, you know... Um, essentially um, trying to get her sort of separated so that he can kill her. Um, I don't think that objective is particularly like, you know, strong. I think, I think he wants the process, yeah. you know, like, and it's, you know, um, I, I think that's, that's part, part of what's so chilling about it. I do want to talk about the amusement park scene, but what were you talking about Devon? No, I mean, it, it can play into the amusement park scene as well, but like, it's like the thing with guy that I think it works differently from the book is because we don't need the the will he won't he which is you know kind of classic like you know alfred Hitchcock did something a little bit different where it's like guy knows he's innocent but like the bruno's influence is like literally so powerful that he's almost convincing guy mm -hmm. that he's guilty even when he's not like it, he, he presents this kind of radical theory of basically being like well even if you think in your heart that you want somebody dead then you're pretty much still a murderer even if you didn't do the murder you know yeah. which is like kind of a it's a it's a wackadoo you know concept but like Bruno is one of the you know the best you know they always say like the best liars are the ones that truly believe it you know so like I think it goes into that in in a way that like like you said like Bruno he's already past this he's not mm -hmm. having yeah. these moral dilemmas he's he just needs like permission himself. in a weird way yeah, yeah. And, and that that really he, is because he's trying to be courteous <laughs> right exactly well that is that scene though where a uh, guy's on the phone and he's like I could strangle her which is just like kind of one of those things that I feel like a lot of people are just like oh god I could just kill that person like you, you kind of that offhanded comment like that and what Hitchcock seems to have a lot of fun with here is taking that that extra what if the wrong person heard you say that and is like trying to help you, you know, help you commit that? And I love that a lot of and you were talking about kind of the practicality of him getting away with this. Well, it's like, again, it's like the 50s, like you could pretty much get away with anything. And the fact that he's just like, oh, we had a conversation about him. I have his lighter here. He has my gun. He has my keys. You know, like he's already <laughs> giving him all of the incriminating evidence here. Yeah, there's no him. DNA to fall back on and stuff, yeah. you know. Um, but uh, one thing that we sort of you sort of kind of touched on was um, the idea that like you know some adaptation changes were made from the book to mm -hmm. the to the movie, and I think ultimately that was probably because like this was a studio movie. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it, it what you know like I, like I, I know you, you we um you know what, what was the budget of the movie one and a half million? Uh, one point seven back yeah. in the yeah movie, yeah. So probably, that's yeah. that's about thirty million today. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you 
and these days you still couldn't make a movie with with an unsympathetic protagonist at thirty million dollars. Yeah, you know that what I mean. Is very true. Like like <laughs> they they wouldn't let you. You know, and and you could take those risks in an in a narrative space like with a published novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you know, you know, I think you would have to make some concessions if you're going to do it do it yeah. you tell the story on a canvas like that and, and settle for a scene where he looks at the gun and puts it away it's like that's all you get yeah that, that's the, your moral ambiguity with the character <laughs> totally it's, like, yeah. it's still there but but it's you know like i think he watered down like psycho is like you know, but the novel's darker than the movie you know yeah. things like yeah. that like i think you see that again in his career is he, he's trying to tell these stories and try to keep the heart of them while doing them in the studio system yeah yeah he definitely like has um uh, and i think we do still get that moment too like whenever guy has to like react to the family mm-hmm. after he already knows that miriam's dead and he's like so bad at acting because like he does on one hand he is kind of happy about it yeah uh, to a degree when he's just like what no, no, she's dead. You shouldn't oh. have. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Well, uh, uh, Barbara, who's portrayed by um, Patricia Hitchcock, which is Alfred uh, Hitchcock's daughter. That uh, explains she, a lot. She has that scene where she's like, no, you can just get married and it's great. And he's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> and she's always such a good comic relief. Like she's 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 in Psycho as well. Like you yeah. know, like uh, but yeah, she yeah, pops yeah. up again and again, and it's just kind of a funny character actor. Yeah, yeah. I I wanted to talk about the amusement park scene, the first one, because there's a couple, but the very first one is kind of like one of the you know scenes from this movie. There, there's a few to choose from here, but I think that scene really exemplifies what I was talking about earlier: is Hitch's ability to maintain suspense but also reveal character and also keep the plot moving along because there's not actually a lot of dialogue in that scene there's like you know characters are talking but it's not necessarily like important to the film they're just having you know chit chat sort of conversations and i love that in that we get you know stuff about bruno's character that he pops the balloon of that little kid which is fucking hilarious it's one of my favorite moments in this movie it makes me laugh every single time but the fact that also too he's like a really strong character because he uses the Mm -hmm. hammer to like break the machine so like it it establishes that he's willing to kind of do anything to anybody because he like caused harm to you know quote unquote harm to this kid he's also really strong too but it's also really funny as well there's that scene where they're in the tunnel of love and she lets out a big scream and then you know you see the shadow uh like approaching the other boat and then they come out no she's fine she's just flirting it's kind of what you were talking about where hitchcock really seems to want to remind the audience that they're watching a movie and he seems to have fun kind of like oh i got you i got you you thought i killed him but you know oh yeah because i mean it's it's we we know exactly how this is gonna go you know so it's like him you know being able to pace out how long to hold each of these scenes and at first and it's like and having the duality again because of the difference of us knowing more information than the characters do Mm -hmm. is like you know we're watching it this is creepy and scary as hell and he is being just like like he is straight up stalking her and she thinks they're having a thing like this like offhanded like you know non-verbal flirtation you know so she's just like kind of falling into it and you're just like oh no girl like that is so weird (laughs) and like like, as soon as he did the eyebrows thing i would have been like hey uh let's let's uh, not let this guy follow us anymore but that he, i think that robert walker again died the year that this movie was released died at like in his early 30s which is, which is so tragic but that, that look that he gives i i love it because it is this look of like this kind of like animalistic like attraction but also like i want to see what you look like dead you know i think he, he is able to convey that so well with his eyes right robert walker in this movie is bruno is like one of my favorite hitchcock performances yeah it's really a shame that he didn't like his um from my understanding like he uh, I haven't seen a ton of other movies in it, but he was kind of the hero for a lot of his career. And mm-hmm. then I think only really kind of have these kind of nice villain turns like 
you know, right at the end, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so I, I wonder if he could have, you know, stuck around a little longer, you know, cause he was like early thirties, like, right. Like yeah. 31, 32. Yeah. He struggled with uh, alcoholism reportedly. And like after one bad night, like some doctors gave him like some sedatives cause he was drinking too much, which is not a good idea to give somebody like a depressant while they're like, mm-hmm. you know, blackout drunk and his body just like shut down after that. So yeah, it's a real shame. He did have like a pretty, for being in his early thirties, he did have a pretty illustrious yeah. career, but again, it wasn't roles like this. This was like such a turn for him and I, it's such a shame obviously that we lost yeah, somebody in the early 20, 30s, 25 years of exactly, really good yeah. parts and like he, especially after this you 100%, know, like, yeah he totally could have had this amazing next chapter in his career it's such a shame oh yeah and like it's 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 so great and i mean and just like every every little, little detail and like even when he actually does the kill himself just like the simplicity of just like walking hey are you miriam yeah yes yes i am <laughs> like just instantly you know kind of goes into it and obviously the the famous shot of you know the strangulation the glasses the glasses is man oh, clean man. as hell one like, of the best uh, yeah it, it, it's so good and uh and yeah he, he does uh set pieces in such uh interesting ways as well because uh, my my favorite um scene that i remember really stood out to me the first time is um uh when bruno is uh stalking stalking guy like kind of in the in-between you know um he's ignoring bruno's calls and his letters and stuff yeah, yeah. and then so bruno even with having a you know police escort you know somebody that's watching him uh is still you know being stalked un- unknowingly you know throughout and like um uh you know i i need more tension-filled tennis matches in my films uh yeah. you know so like that that first the the first one where we see you know bruno in the crowd he's the only one not moving his Incredible. head because he's yeah. only um watching guy is uh, a spectacular all time shot. shot there's spectacular i know that shot gets a lot of love as it should it's one of my favorite hitchcock shots it's so so unsettling so creepy but there's also a few shots uh in washington dc yeah. where he's like yep. on the monument by himself like on the steps like i think that shot's a little bit more eerie because he's like obscured and he's a little far away so all you see is like this silhouette of this man being like dwarfed by these like giant buildings it's yeah it's creepy as fuck <laughs> yeah yeah there, i mean there, there's so many good shots just all over this movie um yeah like like i mean i i actually really like the the like the simplicity of the ending like oh, like yeah. you know like that that kind of last like carousel sequence um you know even like just the weirdness of like the dude sneaking under it like that's really terrifying have you ever been on a weird like, old like, man the, just the marigo yeah you know and you're just like i don't know who the hell this guy is like i, you know, I, I was terrified you know the like, fact it's that like, a cop just shoots a random yeah, guy yeah, he totally. just murders just, the operator yeah. well and then how unsettling uh the, Bru- the Bruno's performance at the end is like, like, you know, that he just still will not give it up. Even like, you know, death, it, it, yeah. it, you know, even just like he's, st- it's so, um, it's so fun and it's so simple. Like, you know, and yeah. it's, uh, you know, like it's, you don't need like, like a flashier, bigger, ending you know like it's yeah it, it really is all the psychological yeah you know? I, I like that it's uh the call back you know to the 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 kill itself so yeah i like having the finale on the carousel um the the shot where you know they're struggling and then they get close to that kid and the kid starts like bopping him on the head and he tries to throw the kid off the carousel Incredible. Incredible. Uh, is great and there's a and the old guy that's like trying to shut down like we have all this tension, you know, we're watching this and we're watching him climb and this guy's taking his time enough to where he's underneath the thing, stops for a sec so he can wipe his old ass mouth and then continues to crawl. Like he like, you know, so like, you know, Hitchcock of, you know, being like, ah, yeah, like I know the tension is right there and I'm going to yeah. pull 
about like even just that one extra half twist. You yeah, know, that is that enough. that scene was shot practically too, which is fucking they let crazy. Wreck a it's carousel bananas. In well, the, the fact no, I mean the guy crawling under the carousel, like oh, that's practically that's cool. done and well, cool, but also like Christ Hitchcock, Dangerous. like he almost killed this Sorry, old man, cool. <laughs> threw him under a carousel. Uh, but yeah, I mean, sure, he's a professional. It's yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah uh, we talked about that on the birds. How he was a real consummate professional with his actors, but um, yeah, that that finale scene uh, I think is great. Again, it's it's Hitchcock at his best, having having suspense, still having the character stuff like you were talking about, to where Bruno is covered in rubble, moments away from death, and he's like still on this sort of bit, like refusing to to relinquish that, and then also having the humor of the woman crying out. She's like, "Oh my baby, save my baby!" And the kid is like laughing on the carousel, having a great time. Yeah, yeah, like I, I mean, you know, like. I do love how you can see like echoes of this. I mean, obviously there's like kind of somewhat direct riffs, like, you know, the throw mama from the train kind of, kind of mm-hmm. movies are like, um, but uh, you know, like uh, something like, you know, like something like the ending of like the cable guy, you know, like, like kind of, you know, like that, you know, like it's like that kind of reminds me of, of, of this movie, you know, and I think owes a lot to it, you know, like you can see because it's so like, I think this movie was quite um, influential like um you know in terms of thrillers and particularly like buddy thrillers yeah uh you know that you can see, still see so many like echoes of it here and there yeah yeah uh, i did that make it on our movie math for the cable guy because it, it sure it, it, like it, it, it was should've. very close it, it should have it, yeah. it almost it i was checking to see if you put it in yours because yeah it, it almost made mine for sure yeah um and 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 mean with the shades of that too i mean we kind of touched on it for a sec but like that the that that dinner scene really is like peak again like social cringe or like whenever it's like like you know we've all been the scenario where it's like either the ex shows up to the family function you weren't expecting them or you know or you bring somebody to a function for the first time and then they kind of make a ham out of themselves um it it, it, you know we'll get into it more with rope but hitchcock does have a weird fascination in his films of like wanting people trying to get people to admit that they think about murder like, you know, and like that's kind of like a recurring motif and like yeah. the way that Bruno uh, rizzes up these two old ladies by being like, oh, no, you t- you think about murder. You you would want to do a murder. And that's twice now, Devon. I, I know we recorded out of order. That's twice now. You've referred to characters rizzing up other people twice in our Hitchcock month. <laughs> but it's doing it with murder is, is, Riz the, funny, with murder. is, is the funniest part. Like, he, I mean, he has these girls like in stitches, like giggling and then yeah. like, you know, you know, like you said, like, can I borrow your neck? Like, like yeah. the the whole thing is just like so cringy as you're kind of watching guy. Um, you know, uh, you know, um, again, like you know, Farley Granger, his face reactions are so good, yeah. and when he's just kind of watching the scenario and just really hoping Bruno's like, can you please just stop talking about murder for ten seconds, exactly. like please. Well, I think Hitchcock really has a lot of fun of like drawing suspense, obviously, but out of like these sort of. Uh, innocuous sort of circumstances. I think that's why he used trains a lot of the time is you have these characters who are like hurtling however many miles per hour, like in this enclosed space, like really nowhere to go. And then I think he also does that too with the dinner scene is you're like, everybody's in these three piece suits and these gowns and they're, you know, talking about all of these eloquent things or that, you know, they have these sort of eloquent ways of speaking, but they're talking about murder and all these, you know, macabre things. And I think that that's exactly what Hitchcock is trying to do is, to try to bring and he did it with his tv show is like try to bring murder like into people's homes you know and make it more uh, uh kind of accessible in a weird way yeah and he did like a lot more like location work uh in his movies than than mm-hmm. people think you know because a lot of them are kind of they you know bring these 
um, larger cameras out to out to like you know the middle of nowhere and then shoot like you know like a you know a carnival or whatever. Like they, they he did a lot more location work than a lot of filmmakers did mm-hmm. at his at the time. You know, like you look at something like Vertigo, yeah. they're like all over like San Francisco. You right. know, like and mm-hmm. it, it's like that was something that you know like was uncommon back then you know like it helped that he was alfred hitchcock yeah well and they would like haul these like massive you know like you know cameras out there that were just completely impractical for shooting and um and they would they would pull it off because it has just a different quality to it and it still kind of looks like a bit studio you know like it's and you're just like huh it's a weird sort of juxtaposition because a lot of movies from the 50s didn't do that they're all on sound stages and then have very select like second unit stuff like out there that they sort of just kind of like and you dissolve in from the exterior and now we're inside mm-hmm. for the rest of the movie you know yeah. and and he didn't always do that he tried to always like you know he would shoot like no he's not we're obviously not practically on a train but like um but he would go and and, and use utilize locations um much yeah. more than uh um th- than a lot of directors and and it and it, i think it helps like just give a little bit of an authenticity to these kind of oddball things that he's doing yeah mm-hmm. and i'm glad that hitchcock too uh was had the willingness to like go back and to make black and white movies because he yeah well he had the he he could have made this in color if he wanted to but i think because it is like a noir film like he you know rope was was in color and then going back to black and white here i think just purely like visually and aesthetically this is like one of my favorite hitchcock movies i think like this is a really gorgeous film i love his use of like creative angles a lot of like uh low angles like shooting up on the on you know people's faces and uh his use of shadows and everything here i think it's it's really well done and again shooting it on location certainly helps yeah and it was still like early enough in that in the you know the the life of color film that it was a real like budgetary decision to to decide whether or not whereas like i think it's more bold shooting psycho black and white you know because by then it would have been a little bit more like well you know what's the difference you know whereas you know 1951 the default would have been like a black and white thing for for a studio but i I think my point was more of that like again like shooting practically like hitchcock if he wanted to he probably could because he he had that kind of um, yeah it's a high but high budget enough movie you think they probably could have done but it would have been a significant flying him out over to america and they're like please make movies for us now like here's all the money that you need i I see it almost i mean i think it fit i think it does fit stylistically better for this like i feel like some of these scenes you wouldn't have been able to light properly in these locations mm-hmm. like you know to to get them in color like that alley scene you know where bruno yeah. is just barely lit in that dark alley is such a beautiful shot you know yeah. and i don't think it would have came off the same but i feel like it's almost an ego thing too with hitchcock of being like okay yeah maybe times are changing and like all this you know film stuff but like if i want to make a movie in black and white i'm gonna make it in black and white like <laughs> well, and you don't have to tell me you yeah and you you and you, you i think black and white at that point was definitely like the default like and you had to kind of like i think you had to lean into the razzle dazzle of rope you know like, like where he was like i'm gonna pull out all the stops visually you know mm-hmm. um whereas i think at that point it was definitely still you know a bit more of a, also a with bit more rope, of a thing. he shot it in like one place and so yeah. they're like okay fine like you, you stay you stay put yeah. here's your yeah. color camera <laughs> which, I, which i've had the split on well, especially you know? those long takes like with something yeah. like, like that's you know like that would, would not have been cheap back then you know yeah yeah and which i've been split on you know i think i prefer his like more close close set um you know single location uh stuff more than his sprawling stuff but this i feel like is kind of the best of both worlds because Mm -hmm. again one the way he uses the train multiple times to not only keep the the location but also the the sense of time as well like Mm -hmm. you know because it takes time to get somewhere on a train you know and like and that i love the way that that plays into um the uh the the you know the true climactic tennis match which i absolutely love 
you know, you got the two different things going on. He's trying to, you know, guy is trying to uh, win this match so he can make sure he catches the train on time to like, you know, do all the things versus, and then you got Bruno just struggling with a lighter in the grid, but even still the, the two of them happening at the same time. And, and also using that moment to reveal stuff about Guy. They're like, oh, Guy is typically a slow, methodical player. He likes to watch things play out. And then they're like, oh, he's being aggressive in this one because mm-hmm. he's trying to end the match sooner. So, like, yeah. it kind of reflects, like, kind of the, you know, change in, like, agency he's kind of had in this whole situation where, like, yeah. this is him finally deciding he's going to do something. Like, the whole rest of the movie is him, you know, looking over his shoulder and being scared to do stuff. Like, yeah. he had the cop with him, and he could have reported Bruno, but he was yeah. too scared, you know, at the moment. Well, that oh, go ahead. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, and that's kind of, like, how... I mean, there's always this kind of, like, you know, in, in screen there's always kind of this, like, page 20 kind of, like, uh, you know, like, like, like kind of thing where, where your character is sort of, like, faced with this decision... Um, and, and, and they can make the right decision. And if they make the right decision, there's no movie. You know, like, yeah. and so like, I, like, I think because he's kind of like, you know, is somebody who struggles with agency and struggles with like, you know, like telling people what he wants or like dealing with problems in a, in a mm-hmm. adult way, like, you know, it, like all of those things that, that, that he'll have to kind of, you know, rise to the occasion and learn. Um, it, it's interesting to see how that stuff plays out. Cause it's so meddled with like, you know, in, in this movie where you're, um, you know, you, you, you have these characters that, that have like, um, this kind of, uh, um, you know, ambiguity to where they are morally. Yeah. And I think, uh, the utility of adding in that sort of anecdote about the character of like their, their play style with tennis. Cause like Hitchcock apparently was like quite frustrated with the tennis sequence because as most like film people are big, not big sports people, you know? <laughs> and I think Hitchcock, he, he was like kind of frustrated and didn't really know what to do because he had like so much coverage of this tennis match. And it was like, <laughs> how, what do I do with this? You know, like how do I communicate other than like the score of like how this is going? You know, is it just me calling out the score every two minutes or something like that? So the detail about him, say switching up his play style and, that you know cutting back to him in the the storm drain trying to get the the cigarette case or the lighter and yeah i i think it's incredibly tense and suspenseful the parallel parallel editing stuff really really helps but i mean i'm hey i get it i mean tennis sucks to shoot like you're out there in like a field you're in a large large court there's no sun you know it's got to be bright sun i'm sure it was probably awful tons of people out there too he's probably out there all day just like what is 40 love and 50 nuff or whatever it is (laughs) it's like he was like well if the if the tension from this tennis match and how slow methodical it is going to bother me, then it's definitely going to get the audience. So we're shooting the tennis match. We're still doing this. Yeah. uh, Which is uh, really fun. And, um, and uh, yeah, I guess uh, before we close out, I did want to touch on um, the, the kind of underlying subplot of guy with, um, you know, with Anne and the being the daughter of the Senator Um, and this idea of like, cause that's really kind of what's keeping him from, you know, doing something about what's going on because he doesn't want just any inkling to splash back on the reputation of his soon to be father in law. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wish I wish Anne kinda had a little bit more to do, but I like that she does get to figure things out on her own. Like she puts the pieces together, like it doesn't have to and then like so by the time Guy actually does tell her what's going on, she's like not surprised at all mm-hmm. because she's already been picking pieces up. So I, I do like that they still for how little she's in it, she does get to still have the agency in it, but then her sister Babs though could have done without. 
dra- every time she came on screen, I was just like, oh my God, I want this grown little child to like stop talking. Uh, uh, but I, I know she's a, she's a fan favorite. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, Barbara's character, uh, I think has a bit more utility to the story, especially of how she relates to Bruno. Like the fact that she has these really thick, like Coke bottle glasses, you know, that, that Bruno kind of like, gives him flashbacks like triggers him into having like this ptsd flashback of thinking that he's right there in the carnival he like hears the Puts music and everything in a murder trance yeah from the glasses. yeah uh but yeah uh barbara portrayed again by uh patricia uh, hitchcock i i enjoy uh the, the inclusion of that I, I i do like the you know comedic relief that she offers but i think yeah ann morton uh, uh ruth uh, roman portrays her and i think that she's excellent again uh uh i love how she's able to to really be of help through with guys she's not just like this damsel in distress that guy is like racing to save at the end of the movie she's like very active and involved in like you know this entire thing getting you know uh uh them pulling it off so yeah i i, I really like their relationship yeah uh i mean she she definitely fits the um you know barbara definitely fits the role in the in the noir of like the the young hip kid that is you know help uh, helping the bumbling you know fool that like kind of can't really do anything there's mm-hmm. like it always tends to be the the younger you know snappier wittier one um I, I just thought she was just i was just like she has no chill whatsoever <laughs> zero chill to be uh to be found um but uh let's go ahead and uh, get into our final thoughts uh here out of out of uh, five tennis rackets uh tyler go ahead and give us uh, your final thoughts and score out of five i'd say it's probably a four and a half Four and a half? Yeah, I would say I'm about a four and a half as well. I could have used with a little bit more kind of push and pull with Guy's morality. I feel like he's really in this like morally correct place a lot of the film. And I think whether it is because of the time and circumstances, whatever the case may be, I would have just preferred a bit more of a gray area there to where he is like, I don't know, I really could use with this person being gone from my life. And even if he immediately squashes it, that kind of sense of... That would be nice, uh, I think, would have would have really helped. Uh, but still, it's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies. Uh, I think Robert Walker gives one of the best performances in a Hitchcock film, just oozing with charisma and charm, but like in the like grossest, slimiest way possible. I think this film is gorgeous. The photography is amazing. I think the music is great. Um, I really love what Hitchcock is able to do as a director uh, of, you know, uh, having this background more in drama uh, and, and more in character, but kind of emerging into being more about thrills and murder and suspense. I, I think that this is such a great kind of turn of the page for Hitchcock's career. So I really love the place that it has in his uh, his his oeuvre. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, for me, yeah, four and a half out of five uh, personalized lighters or uh, uh, tennis rackets. Yeah, you can really see like a lot of the, um, you know, like planning of this like mm-hmm. i think like in terms of you know there's sequences that are sh- conceived of and shot to be edited a specific way yeah and a lot of things that very much like kind of flow into each other and covered very simply and um you know like i um you know i think like hitchcock famously was was a guy who did a lot of like you know storyboards and and, and utilized a lot of those pre-production techniques yeah and i think you can really see that kind of pay off and and, and you could almost take i don't know it's probably a dozen sequences in this movie that you could mm-hmm. sort of take take out and probably compare to like his plans which probably still exist somewhere yeah and and then and then see how they're sort of they are the engine is running yeah. um you know like from conceit through execution and they're they're working like they're supposed to yeah and it's um it, it's really quite 
fascinating, like, and I think is very helpful for somebody who is getting into making films to watch something like this because yeah. it's very rich, uh, like in a sequence by sequence, um, you know, way in terms of like how you build tension visually and with and with w- w- editorial and like yeah. how those can be kind of integrated with Which each other. Which is why he they shot a pretty sizable portion of this movie before the script was even finished because he's such a visual filmmaker. That shot of like in the glasses is something that he had already like thought of or the, no, the shot in the stands is something that he had already kind of thought of. And yeah, you're, you're exactly right that he plans so much that when he would get on set, he's kind of like, this is kind of fucking boring. <laughs> like, I, mean, <laughs> I like it, the planning more. <laughs> yeah, it, it's very interesting that like, you know, a lot of the films that we've talked about and then like kind of going back and realizing like how many of his films were adaptations yeah. but it's in the way that he adapts it that like sometimes you wouldn't even know and like it's almost a interesting route to go because i mean imagine you know the way that people get upset about you know uh, adaptations not being more accurate or faithful to the you know original medium like oh my goodness people would be having a field day they're like did you hear he shot before he even finished reading i didn't even kill the dad in this one like today it would it it would just not fly but i i love the way that he does adapt things and uh, for me this is a 4.5 out of 5 as well um i think this is just a banger as far as visually like i mean there's so much style in it kind of does a little bit of everything that he does uh really well it has the the delicious conversation pieces between characters uh the performances and uh just the way that uh the 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 tension and suspense evolves over time like you know like a lot of his films like you know start in one uh kind of tone and then they always end in a very different tone uh which is uh something that i can very much appreciate so uh 4.5 across the board for for strangers on a train yeah it's also weird to kind of give something like this like 4.5 when it is kind of like somewhat widely regarded as a kind of a masterpiece you know because yeah. it's just like the only reason i'm not giving it five is because i've seen other hitchcock movies that are better than this one and you gotta, <laughs> you gotta leave some air in the air gas in the tank you know exactly uh, my, mine is 0.5 off for babs that, that, that that's where i draw that that's holding this thing back from being a five-star banger dang uh hitch's daughter uh, is his catching uh, strays, <laughs> catching strays his achilles heel <laughs> but uh let's see what other movies we had on the brain while we were talking strangers on a train Um, all right, here on Spectre Cinema Club, we like to conclude our episodes by playing movie math. Uh, so uh, Devon and I can go ahead and go first, so Tyler uh, can be shown the ropes here. Uh, Devon, uh, you have a, an equation that's about normally as, as difficult as, you know, complicated as it normally is. Mine is very simple this week, so yeah. what's in your equation? I mean, my, mine was also simple, but then uh, through conversation, I did have to add uh, one in there. So, uh, so in my parentheses, I have the cable guy. Because I was back and forth on putting it in my equation, but then the fact that you guys brought it up, I was like, okay, so I'm not crazy. Uh, I mean, you guys uh, heard we did an episode on the cable guy in our almost horror month. And uh, yeah, very much uh, the idea of this kind of forced friendship, but then also uh, kind of beholding somebody to being like, well, hey, I'm doing these things for you. So like, you should really return the favor, um, you know, uh, you know, but it's not as uh, nefarious in the cable guy. So I have that divided by uh, the fan. Um, if you've seen that, I think it was uh, the 90s, uh, Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes. Um, again, uh, I think as a staple in the, um, you know, people stalking specifically athletes uh, and uh, celebrities of like that kind of status. 
um, versus in this one, or uh, Robert De Niro's character uh, is not like Bruno. He is not just rich and bored. Like mm-hmm. this guy is a hard worker, and his like whole solace is is baseball. And uh, he kind of puts this, you know, puts all this weight into, you know, the the relationship they has with Leslie Snipes' character, which he doesn't actually even have, but it's just what you know he knows through through sports and things like that, and then uh, becomes more embroiled in his personal life as uh, the film goes on. So I have uh, Cable Guy divided by the fan, uh, multiplied by Bernie. Uh, this is a Richard Linklater film from a few years ago. And uh, mainly for kind of the style, like I think the the kind of dark sense of humor uh, is pretty similar to that of Bernie. But then also the idea of, you know, there's so many narratives on, you know, what you believe about a person um, to be true or to not be true. But then also like the idea of like, oh, like, hey, sometimes killing a person's not so bad, you know, like (laughs) and this like kind of collective community that rallies behind uh, this character who is being accused of murder. Um, you know, it's a very interesting, um, uh, film that is, you know, very interesting to look back now, like in a more booming social media world. Um, uh, so if you haven't seen Bernie underrated, um, uh, banger, uh, Jack Black is fantastic. One of his best roles, honestly. So. Yeah. I think you and I went in uh, pretty similar directions here. Uh, I have Saboteur, which is like sort of a proto reboot of the 39 steps uh the alfred hitchcock film also about a man who's like framed for a crime that he didn't commit most of the movie is just him trying to prove his innocence i have that divided by cape fear uh the original uh, 1962 film not the uh, scorsese movie both are really great but uh, i think the original film uh, is a bit closer in execution and, and aesthetic and all of that but yeah the idea of being framed for this crime by someone who has this uh very unhealthy obsession with somebody and this uh, uh, obsession in Cape Fear is more of like for revenge reasons rather than like an infatuation. Uh, but I still feel like the DNA uh, certainly is in Cape Fear because uh, Strangers on the Train was like one of the first like, you know, real stalker thrillers. And I, I think that, as you'd already mentioned, with erotic thrillers and films like Cape Fear or The Cable Guy, uh, I, I feel like uh, certainly the DNA of uh, Hitchcock's filmography is uh, all in those. But uh, what about you, Tyler? Oh, uh, I mean, this is my first movie math, so it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a little tricky, but um, I think I might go a little throwback with my general references, uh, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say, like, uh, for me, it's like, it happened one night, like the Frank Capra, like, Mm -hmm. you know, very classic strangers meeting, like, you know, uh, rom-com, like really the proto rom-com, multiplied by Double Indemnity which mm-hmm. I, uh, Billy Wilder's classic uh, film noir, which is, um, you know, great plot, uh, kind of insurance, you know, money sort of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So very similar to this, very similar photography, very similar vibe. Um, uh, multiplied by uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which mm-hmm. is my one of my favorite two-handers and I think has something in common with it, even though it has way less uh, comedy going on. Um, and I'd say all that is, you know, within parentheses uh, to, the, to the power of uh, Dial in for Murder. Nice. Just Hitchcock's own, um, you know, thing, which I think is also about a, a tennis. Like, I think the guy is also a tennis player. Ooh. Um, you know, anyway, uh, and I think that would equal um, 
Strange Lot Train. Yeah, those are all bangers. Yeah, uh, it's been a hot minute since I've actually watched uh, Dial in for Murder. He I need is to, a tennis player. I need to rewatch it. But we that's don't a, get that's to see him pull. play. We don't get to see him play tennis, but he is a. I think he might be like retired, but he, he yeah. is also a tennis player. Yeah, very funny. Yeah, uh, connection between those two. Yeah, it happened one night. Also has a meet cue. It's on a on a bus, not on a yeah, on exactly. A train, that, but it's still know, a great kind of like circumstantial. You know, I'm just throwing it out there. Any of those movies would make great double features for this. I, I totally agree. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think we're definitely all along the same lines uh as much as i do love uh the uh robert de niro version of cape fear uh if i want anybody to uh stalk me it's mitchum baby <laughs> uh he, he definitely gives off uh, some bruno vibes for sure um but yeah that was a great conversation thank you so much tyler for coming on the show um is there anything that uh, you would like to throw out or plug or anywhere that people can find you uh hey i don't know when this is coming out but uh it's a wonderful knife uh came out on november 10th in theaters across america if it's still around please check it out at your local cinema or even one that's not that local that would still really help us out and, <laughs> and the movie will come to uh shutter in uh, december Okay, yeah. So it'll be on Shutter here soon, but yeah, do yourself go do uh go see it in theaters. Go see it with a crowd. Yeah. Um, I heard uh, it, I had a small crowd, but it was a very active crowd though, nice. which was really great. Like people were laughing uh at stuff, getting excited for the kills and stuff. So uh, yeah, go see it in theaters if you're able to. Yeah, I totally uh, echo that as well. Uh, it's really like perfect for this time of year. If you're not in the Christmas spirit, it'll immediately kind of thrust you into that. Uh, and I could totally see this being like one that a lot of horror fans, you know, it's like it joins. The their their uh now christmas season you know uh, sort of catalog here so absolutely go check that out uh but you can follow me on letterboxd and tiktok uh and twitter at garrett mcdowell uh, but if you want some more podcast goodness from me uh, i've got a star wars podcast called scum and villainy uh new episodes every single thursday and you can find me at the usual places at underscore daddy disco. You can hear me uh, do some more podcasting over on the pod and pendulum. Uh, hey, did you like listen to three hours of us doing the saw rankings? Well, guess what? I did it again. <laughs> um, but it is worth listening to both episodes because the collective list from the pod and pendulum panelists. It's um, nonsense. I, Madness. You told me some of this crazy. I, I was the, I was the wild card. <laughs> I was catching strays in the notes uh, all through because I like jacked up like the, the consensus order apparently. Apparently, and I was like, hey, I'm the only one that's got some fun opinions over yeah, here. Yeah. Uh, n uh, no shade to my co-panelists over there. They're, they're also great. And we did uh, such amazing work um, on the Saw series. So I definitely had to do both ranking episodes. So you can go uh, take a listen to that. And then until next week, um, we will be talking rope. So we'll see you next time. But I'll go ahead and do it for this week's episode of the Spectre Cinema Club. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Subscribe to not miss a thing. You can follow us on social media at Spectre Cinema on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, leave us five stars, a nice little review. We appreciate you. But until next time, guys, stay lifted. <laughs>